and welcome back to another of our Learn With Sue Walk and Talk podcast where we talk all things positive psychology, emotional intelligence and neuroscience uh, with myself, Sue Langley, and today joined by the fabulous Professor Isaac Prilentensky. Uh, Isaac has an amazing background personally, born in Argentina, has lived and worked in uh, Israel, Canada, Australia and now the US and has a wonderful uh, history of research and, and practical application in community wellbeing. So please join me for the first part of our member conversation with the amazing Isaac Prilentensky. All right, well, let's make a start. So welcome everybody. Welcome to another of our Learn With Sue Live. Those of you who are on live, then you're welcome to share any questions or comments or thoughts in chat. If you're listening to the recording, then welcome. Uh, we are joined today um, by somebody who uh, I've actually been following their work for a number of years, probably 20 years. Um, and Isaac Prilentensky has been uh, part of, those of you who've done the diploma, part of our Positive Communities Diploma for the last 10 years. So even if you're not sure whether you've heard of Isaac's work, if you've done our Positive Communities uh, elective as part of the diploma, you will have come across it because it features very heavily. Uh, so Isaac, you've been in this space for a long period of time. Welcome to our Learn With Sue session. It's an honor to have you on this morning. Well, thank you so much. Uh... It's, it's always a pleasure to speak to our Australian friends and colleagues. I know you couldn't tell this from my accent, but I am an Australian citizen. So we lived in Melbourne for several years, long enough to become citizens. And I just renewed my passport, my Australian <laughs> passport. And um, it's lovely to be with you today. Thank you so much, Isaac. It's an honor for you to be with us. So we've got a few more people that have jumped on live. Thank you and welcome. Uh, Isaac, I would like to start with, um, I can go through all your credentials and we'll pop, pop that on the system. But what I really would like to ask, you've really focused a lot in community wellbeing. So you've got some sort of key themes that you're focused more on now, which we'll get to in a moment. But you've been in this space a long period of time. You and I have met at um, various conferences or passed each other in along the way. But you've been a real voice in the community well-being space. Why community well-being for you? I think that without community well-being, it's very hard to promote personal well-being. Yeah. So if we're all interested in personal well-being and ways to thrive and flourish, a very important ingredient of that is our experience of belonging and inclusion and community. Mm -hmm. We developed a model of well-being which consists of six domains. I'm sure your, your listeners are familiar with the PERMA model, you know, <laughs> that Seligman developed and Carol Reeves model. And there are very well-established um, models of well-being. Uh, what I felt was missing was the community aspects of well-being. So in positive psychology, in the well-being science, many people understand the importance of relationships. Mm -hmm healthy relationships for our health and wellness. I think that communities are also an essential part um, of well-being. 
And nowadays, there has been an explosion of understanding and appreciation for the role of belonging to a community and mattering diversity, equity, and inclusion. So at the end of the day, we we live in communities. And there is only so much we can improve our well-being without participating in social life. So one insight that I had was that we run the risk of fostering a me culture as opposed to what I call a we culture. So in a me culture, a lot of people say, I have the right to feel valued so that I can be happy. And that is good, but that is only 50% of the well-being formula. The other 50% is I have the right and responsibility to feel valued and add value to others so that we can all experience not just wellness, but also fairness. So so let me stop there, but by way of introduction. Yeah, I'll pick. I'll come back to the fairness piece in a moment. I want to pick up on the mattering piece because there's a lot of wonderful research around meaning and the importance of mattering and significance. And I think to your point, what the research always tells us is, um, how do I feel valued and do I add value? And sometimes to your point, we miss the second bit is I matter because I contribute something. I make a difference to other people, whether it's my family, my friends, my community, etc. So around that, what sort of things could we do around that? What would you be hoping people would do to ensure that they're not just feeling valued, but adding value? Yeah, that's a great question. And I like to think about the spheres of influence in our lives. So we start with our own family and workplace and friends and community all the way to, you know, to the social sphere and the ecology and the political scene. So we can think about concentric circles and we all ask ourselves, where can I make a contribution? Mm. Where can I improve other people's lives? And there is a well-known principle in the helping professions. It's called the helper therapy principle. And what it means is that if I'm helping somebody, the first person I'm helping is myself, right? Because when we volunteer, there is a lot of research on volunteering. When I volunteer, when I'm adding value to the community, Maybe I volunteer in a children's hospital or in a school or wherever your passion may take you, we feel useful. We make a contribution. And usually as a result of that, people say, oh, thank you, Sue. What you've done is very helpful. Thank you, Isaac. And then we feel valued. Mm. So it's really not that complicated. We have to ask ourselves, where can I add value to someone? It could be an individual, a family, a group. It could be an advocacy group. It could be a human rights cause. It could be an environmental movement. We have to ask ourselves, where can I marry my passion with my contribution? 
And then that's the sweet spot where we feel passionate about some things and we find a good outlet to make a contribution. And the research on volunteering shows volunteering improves your well-being as a volunteer because you feel like you matter. So ask yourself, what questions, what open-ended questions can I ask my children today? How can I listen to them? You know, we talk about gifts of the head. What ideas can I contribute to others? Gifts of the hand. What tangible help can I offer? Maybe the elderly neighbor, I can do shopping for her. And gifts of the heart. How can I offer emotional support to someone? So ask yourself, what, where can I give gifts of the head, heart, and hand? I love that. That's a nice way of breaking it down into different areas. So yeah, beautiful. So when we think about that um, and and what I'm hearing, and it comes from the work I think around um, altruism, the work of kindness, that actually the adding value makes us feel valued. And that links to, there's been a lot um, during the pandemic about the increase in loneliness. And yet they found one of the key antidotes to loneliness is actually doing a random act of kindness for somebody else. So it's interesting how these two, we sometimes wait to feel valued and yet actually offering value seems to then come back to us almost immediately. Exactly. And that's the agency that we have. That's the responsibility part. You know, it's not just, oh, I have the right to feel valued. Come and love me. (laughs) You, you, You know, you have to do something to gain appreciation and recognition. Yeah. And the beautiful thing is that you will always be able to find somebody whom you can help in some fashion. Yeah. Uh, and that is the key to engendering a virtuous cycle. I add value, I feed value, yeah. I feel valued, and I want to add more value. Yeah. And yeah. that that um, starts this virtuous cycle. Yeah, brilliant. So, and I know, um, and I've got lots of your papers and things down here and some of your images that we've spoken about, is that mattering is that central part um, that you often talk about. And then you mentioned, therefore, fairness and you mentioned justice being important. So how does that then sort of then influence um, those other components of your research? Right. So, I was interested in the determinants of health and happiness and well-being. And because I'm a community psychologist, I've had the long-standing interest in what we call the social conditions of our lives. And according to empirical studies we conducted, we, we conducted studies with a representative sample of the US population So that was what we might call an individual level study. We ask individuals about their experiences of fairness and mattering and well-being. And we also conducted studies at the international level, comparing entire countries on their social justice policies, their levels of mattering as a citizen, and their levels of happiness and life satisfaction. In other words, we conducted studies with individuals and we compared policies and data from entire countries. And what we found was that the more people experience fairness in their lives, 
at work, in the community at large, in society, the more they experience fairness, the more they, they feel like they are treated with dignity and respect because they're treated as equal human beings. And the more we're treated like equal human beings, the more we feel like we matter because be that at work or in the community or interacting with the government in some capacity, it, we feel like we are being respected and our humanity is upheld. We're treated with kindness. That makes me feel valued. That makes me feel like I matter. Yeah. So what we found was that social justice impacts well-being directly. There is direct statistical influence, but mainly social justice and fairness impact well-being through experiences of mattering. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. I feel like I matter as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a student, as a boss, as a colleague, as a citizen. In all these roles, the more I am made to feel valued because I'm treated with respect, because I am the subject to fairness, the happier, healthier I become. Wonderful. And what I really love about this, Isaac, is um, you shared some research, I think fairly recently, on those different countries. And the ones where the countries where there's um less differentiation between the the most wealthy and the least wealthy sort of thing in a population the happier if you like people tend to be and once again we see this all the time with finland coming out or the scandinavian countries coming out as sort of the top of the happiness polls there seems to be something of this fairness that compared to the us for instance where there's uh, more differentiation. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, exactly. So one measure of fairness is inequality, right? So if there is a, a vast distance between social classes, the more inequality there is, the more reason people have to feel I am less than my neighbor. Yeah. Or I am less than these other people because I don't have enough money, because I don't have access to resources that other people with money have. But the more equality there is, the more you reduce what we call status anxiety. Yeah. I'm not as anxious about being less than my neighbors because this is more or less, more or less an egalitarian country, you know, and in Australia, people talk about the fair country, you know, a fair go. And yeah, yeah Australia has a lot of problems. But believe me, I'm a, I'm a US citizen and I'm an Australian citizen. And Australia is much more egalitarian than the US. And as a result, Australians are happier than people in the US. So it all boils down to how do we as a society want to coexist? So do we want to use taxes to fund universal healthcare as in Australia or Canada? I'm also a Canadian citizen. So I've, I've also experienced, <laughs> right. So I've, I've also experienced great social policies in Canada and Australia. And I, I've seen 
the costs of lack of access in the US to good public education, to good healthcare, et cetera. So as you were saying, yes, the research shows countries where there is more equality, where the gap between social classes is not so pronounced, people have less status anxiety. You know, I'm not forever thinking I'm less than other people. I don't have enough because in egalitarian countries like the Nordic countries, they tend to pay a lot of taxes, yep. but it's very egalitarian and people feel safe. People feel protected by the state. That increases your well-being a great deal. Yeah. Um, and we see that to your point. We see it come out all the time with the Scandinavian countries topping the polls in many different areas in that. So so if we think about that sort of um, community well-being, and that could be to your point that your small community with your friends, your family, your neighbours, etc. Or it could be the wider community as in your country. Um, your uh, one of your earlier books, the promoting well-being, is certainly one that I have been through numerous times. With your uh, when you talk about rows, you talk about the three P's, you talk about the three C's, etc. One of the things um, around uh, the three P's that some people may not be as familiar with, um, and I've got it here, so I remember my detail is poverty, um, which is um, when we've got more discrimination between the classes, uh, power, which is the physical or psychological power, and also participation, which is the then the the mattering and the value add. Um, when you sort of first explored these and asked people to come up with the, you know, the risks and the strengths and those sorts of things, um, the weaknesses to, to finding how do you improve a community? I'm interested in where did that come from originally? And then we'll get to the, well, what can we do about it? Well, you know, um, I can blame my international background for picking up a lot of ideas about community and national well-being. You know, I grew up in Argentina under a fascist dictatorship. Uh, I knew a bad country because I lived in one, right? Um, we, my sister was a political prisoner because we objected to the government. Um, and so I grew up in a a totalitarian fascist dictatorship. And, and then I moved around and then I lived in Israel and Canada and Australia. And, and now I've been in the US for a long time. And I like talking to people. So in my work as a psychologist, I talk to a lot of people. I started my career as a, as a clinical child psychologist. I worked in schools and then I worked in communities. I worked with refugee communities in Canada and I did some of that in Australia. And I, I talk to people of all walks of life. Um, and if you listen carefully to what, what people really care about in their lives is feeling valued and adding value. Mm -hmm. And when you ask yourself, how can you add value? Well, you add value through participation. We were just talking about that. That's one of the P's, right? Yeah. And when you ask people, what prevents you from feeling like you matter? Well, two things come on top. One is poverty, the fact that I don't have resources. And it's not just material resources. 
it's all the psychological diminishment mm. that accompany, for example, growing up poor. Mm. And usually with lack, with lack of resources comes lack of power. Yeah. I don't have power to make a difference. I feel helpless. I, I don't know what to do. Um, so I, I have to say that um, my background in psychology and my work in many countries, you know, I, I, I lived in five countries. I visit, I worked in 28 countries and I work with organizations, communities. So you just have to be a good listener. If you're a good listener, you, it's not hard to understand what is at the core of motivation, mm. what is driving us. And this is what my colleague, Arie Kruglansky, calls the significance quest theory. We're always looking to be significant in the world, to matter. Mm. And so then we have to ask ourselves, what are the facilitating factors and what are the inhibiting factors? And some of the P's you mentioned speak to that. Yeah. Okay. And that makes complete sense because um, if I think about my parents came to Australia when they were in their 70s and my sister and I were encouraging them to volunteer because we knew, especially my dad, who'd worked his whole life, he needed to feel valued. He needed to feel that he mattered in some way. So encouraging him to volunteer and do something different. And he still does, you know, sort of, I don't know, 20 years later. Uh, he's still, uh, well, maybe they're in their 60s then. <laughs> but uh, uh, he still does that. And to your point, though, um, I understand the poverty. If you feel like you're diminished in a community, you might not have the psychological resources to actually feel like you can add value. Um, you might not have the skills, the knowledge, the capacity, the space, the financial resources, et cetera. Um, so that makes sense that the, the level that you feel you're at can impact your ability to participate. Exactly, exactly. So poverty is one of those huge barriers to mattering. And there is a lot of work on that, on the, the psychological suffering and discrimination that goes along with growing up in poverty. Mm. Um, so that's why, uh, because I work with refugee communities, because I work with people of all social classes, then it just hits you in the face. Um, what are the social barriers? And this is why I've been promoting this motto that there is no wellness without fairness. Yeah. Uh, because fairness can level the playing field for everybody. And, and then, okay, you have resources. Now it's up to you, right? Now it's your responsibility to add value, not just to the world, but also to yourself. Yeah. But we need to equip individuals with the psychological nutrients and the material resources so that they can flourish. Yeah. And I love what you just said there, the psychological nutrients, what a lovely way of putting it. Um, and I know you've been involved in quite a few um, activities around adding those psychological nutrients. So your Laughing Guides trilogy, um, you've uh, done a lot of the, the online, you've got the Fund for Wellness. Um, how do you find that those, can you, or tell, tell the group a little bit more about them, but how do you find those little nutrients that you sort of share in some of the, the online and the books actually help people? Right, so 
we were talking before about marrying your passion with your contribution. So I, on the side, one of my hobbies is to write humor. And they are very funny. (laughs) Thank you. So, you know, I've been writing humor columns for local newspapers and blogs and such. So when you look at psychological discourse, it is often either jargonish or deficit oriented mm-hmm. or just pretty downright depressing, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I was trying to find an alternative way to engage people with well-being and and to make it light and easy and funny to the extent that I can, you know, be humorous about it. Um, so that was a combination. That's an example of blending passion with contribution. So then we wrote this trilogy, The Laughing Guide to Well-Being, The Laughing Guide to Change, and The Laughing Guide to a Better Life. So that was a fun project. And we also wanted to make all of this accessible to the world at large. So we created uh, funforwellness.com, which is a free website. It was the subject of two randomized control trials, um, and we found positive results. So people who engage with our games and videos, and it's a very interactive site. Yeah, it's really fun. So it's basically, it's a free well-being engine, (laughs) right? And we talk about different drivers of change, And basically, people resonate with that. Mm. And we've been using it, for example, at the University of Miami, where I work. Um, Employees who complete the program, they get money back uh, as part of the wellness-enhancing project of the university. So there are many uses to that. But the bottom line is, I just found something where I could have fun and I could make a contribution. Yeah, and what I really love with the laughing guides, and I haven't read all of them, um, but I love the fact that you tell lots of stories in it, whether it's about your son and chess or aura and various things you've done and your judgmentals anonymous or whatever you, and and you kind of take the take the mickey out of yourself and activities and things that have gone along as a way of, I don't know, highlighting some tools and strategies um, around it. And I think so if anybody hasn't seen them there, you won an award for those as well, which I thought was quite lovely. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, I have to say that some of the writers I admire, you can really learn a lot of lessons from their own lives. And that's what makes good writing. And you know, people like stories and I like putting myself down. You know, I think I should lead by example. You know, if you're a humor writer, it's very easy to put other people down. You know, that that's an easy way out, right? So I rather put myself down. I lead by example. I don't take myself too seriously. Uh, <laughs> and then we just go from there. 
Well, what a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much for listening and for joining me for that conversation. Uh, I love the little wrap up around um, feeling valued and adding value and reminding us all about the impact that we have um, on community wellbeing, whether we realize or whether we don't. So if you would like more, check out the funforwellness.com website um, or connect with Isaac at Miami University and keep an eye out for the importance of every individual wanting to matter in this world. For more of this conversation and many other uh, live sessions with experts, with myself on different topics around well-being, please check us out at learnwithsue.com.au and consider becoming a member of our fabulous learning community. Wishing you a fabulous day ahead. Take care. Bye.